The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. My name is Ben, and I serve as one of our pastors here, and it's a privilege to gather with you in the Word this morning. Pastor Jeff is away on a short-term mission trip. He sends his greetings, and I'll speak more about that at the end of our service. Uh, if you're gathering with us online, we're glad that you're here. Uh, and welcome to our Phoenix mission team. Uh, they are gathering with us online, I presume. So if you're there, glad to have you with us as well. We're going to be in Psalm 25 this morning. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 25. And I said this in the last service, but I want to say it in this service as well. Uh, I am thankful when we sing. I'm thankful when we sing. Uh, the last congregational song that we sang, we were proclaiming that God is our refuge and that his help is ever ready and ever present for us. And it's good for us to sing to each other. Now, perhaps when we sing congregationally, that's not your thought that you're singing to one another. Perhaps we're just gathering to sing. But what we are doing is we are teaching one another what the Bible says. When you come together, come together with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and teaching one another to love God. And so don't miss the formative impact that singing together has. Perhaps you remember a childhood tradition from your family. Perhaps it was a, you always ate dinner at the table or, or whatever it was. You may not remember specifics, but you remember the action over and over and over. And God has designed his people in such a way that singing is one of those aspects, one of, the, one of our family traditions. That we would come together and that we would sing and that we would teach each other. We would remind each other of the truths of our God and his goodness. And so thank you. Thank you. It blessed my heart. I hope it blessed yours, but thank you for singing. As we come to the word, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're in Psalm 25. <clears throat> David writes these words, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who were wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who, love, those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. 
The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. Will you pray with me now? Lord, we come before you with your word opened before us and we ask that you meet us in it. We pray, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts, to call our hearts and our minds to attention. God, we pray that your word would shape us, that it would move us to worship, that it would convict us of sin, and it would call us to salvation, which is only found in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we ask these things in faith. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 25 is a teaching psalm. It's, David is intentionally wanting to teach us something about God. Now, the argument can be made, and rightly so, that all of the Bible is about teaching, but David is here intentionally teaching us about God, and I'm going to argue in just a moment that he's teaching us to do something. But the psalm is about teaching us about God's help and how God helps and who God helps. The background info behind the psalm is really unknown. We don't know much, but it seems to fit with Absalom's rebellion. You know, Absalom, he was the son of King David. He sought to overthrow his father and take hold of the kingdom. And for a while, David lived in exile and he lived in fear. And this psalm has a very somber nature about it. It's a heavy psalm. It's a, it's a cry out of angst. And so it seems to fit with that. Although, as I said, we don't know for sure but it's a heavy psalm. It's an emotional psalm. It's a passionate psalm. And I'm going to argue that David is teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us how to pray before the Lord, how to pray for God's help. And so we must learn to pray from this psalm on the basis of God's character. David's teaching us to pray on the basis or on the foundation of who God is. We must learn to pray as God's people. See, the Bible doesn't leave any room for individualism when it comes to Christianity. This idea that I can be a Christian apart from God's people, that's foreign to the idea that the Bible presents, which is a community of faith that God is forming. That when we are saved through the gospel, we are saved into the community of God's people. And I am now yours and you are now mine. And so we have to learn to pray together as God's people. One of my favorite pastors says, in the Psalms, we learn the language and form of true and proper prayer. You see, there is false prayer. There is improper prayer. God does not listen to prayers that are outside of his word. We can pray with wrong motives. We can pray wrongly. We can beseech God for wrong things when we do not pray according to his character, according to his word. And so the Psalms teach us the language and form of true and proper prayer, prayer that is significant, prayer that is satisfying. How many of you long to pray but find it unsatisfying and thus you don't pray? 
True and proper prayer is deeply, deeply satisfying. It's also community forming. It teaches us how to be in community with one another. How differently would the church look if we approached and related to one another primarily through prayer and godliness? You've heard it said probably that prayer changes things. True prayer is a deep reflection and meditation on God's goodness and character, and true prayer radically changes us. Prayer does change things, but when we pray, we're not contending with God, arguing about choices he's made. We are contending with God, and in contending with God, we are being changed on the basis of who he is. That's why it's so satisfying to pray before the Lord, because faithful prayer, God meets us in that. He comes to meet his people in their prayers when they are right prayers. And as I will show from David, prayers on the basis of his goodness. God wants us to pray just as a father desires that his children come to him, not out of fear, but because the father loves them. In the same way, God is inviting us to pray satisfying, robust prayers on the basis of who he is. And so you see the first point there on your sheet, that David prays for God's help on the basis of God's goodness. He's praying for God's help on the basis of God's goodness. So as I said, the background, well, we don't know exactly what it is. We can say that David is in some kind of emotional a period of anxiety, things are not going well. He talks about enemies, he's asking for God's justice. Something is not going well in, God, in David's life. It's a period of affliction, such as many of you probably are in right now. Some of you are in deep valleys of affliction and you've been there for a while. You've walked through hardship, you've walked through anxiety, you've walked through pain and suffering and that's where David is. So as he prays, he's not just praying, asking God for what he wants. He's praying based on who God is and what God has said. You see the difference? Because it's massive. He's not praying based on what he wants from God. He's praying on the basis of who God is and what God has said. Look at verse one. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, or I bear up my soul, or there's, there's nowhere else for me to go. All of me is before you, God, and in you and you alone do I trust. David is not, he's not running to the world for hope. He's not, he's not looking to his own skill. He's not hoping that things end up the way he wants them to. He's totally focused that God is his faithful God. To you, O Lord, I'm bearing up my soul. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. He's praying on the basis of God's goodness. But before we go any further, I want to define goodness, and I want to let the scriptures define goodness for us. And so when I say goodness, this is what's in my mind, and this is what I think the Bible means. Goodness is benevolence or acting for the good of another. God acts for the good of his people. It's connected with his covenantal promises that run throughout scripture. In this context, his goodness is part of his being Lord over his people. It's part of his exercising authority that the authority God exercises is good. But one thing that we know because we live in the world is that 
what's good for us or what's best is not always what's most comfortable. It's not always what's most preferable. Sometimes, oftentimes, what's most preferable is to just ignore it or to hide it away. Because sometimes dealing with whatever we're dealing with, which would ultimately produce good, hurts. God always acts for the good of his people, and sometimes it hurts. But it's always, always benevolent. Always, always good. And so David has this in his mind that although he's facing emotional turmoil or hardship and he's in a period of affliction, he's not questioning God's motives in this. He's not asking God, why would you let this happen to me? In the midst of the hardship, he's relying on what he knows to be true of God, which is that God is good. And that goodness means that he is acting for David's good. He probably has in mind Genesis 12, where God covenants with Abram. He calls Abram out of a pagan people. And he says, you will go to the land that I will show you. And I'm going to make you into a great people, more numerous even than the stars. And if you know the story of Abram and later Abraham, it's an up and down battle in Abraham's entire life, where he has some high moments of faith and some incredibly low moments of weakness. But does God's promise remain? Yes, it does. God fulfills his promise because his promise wasn't contingent on how well Abraham behaved and how faithful Abraham was. Abraham saw the fulfillment of God's promise because God is faithful. That God made the promise and took the covenant upon himself. He says, if I break my covenant, let bad things be upon me because what he's saying is I will not break it. My promise to save my people is not going to fail because I'm not going to fail. And so David's got that in his mind. He stands in the covenant line. God has established the kingship through which Christ would ultimately come. David sits on that throne and all the things in the world are not going the way David wants them to. He remembers God will not let this fail. Perhaps he's got in mind Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph had been kidnapped by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt. They had told his father, he's, he's been killed. And for years, Joseph lived a hard life of affliction, wrongly accused, but God used him and put him in a place of power. And then his brothers come to him in need of food and they recognize who it is and they're so broken. And what does Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. And then there's a small phrase tacked on that's incredibly massive that says, and for the saving of many. What you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many. You see, Joseph's life was a life of hard goodness. You think Joseph would have chosen that life? Absolutely not. Did Joseph love God through it? Yes, because God sustained him and he had the clarity of mind to see that my life situations are not a reflection on God's goodness. God's goodness makes sense of my life's hardships. Perhaps he had in mind Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse five, when Joshua is being commissioned and he's told, God will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than even your father's. That word prosperous and numerous there, that phrase in the original language could also be translated, do you very much good. 
you take heart because God has promised to do you very much good. And if you are in Christ this morning, if you are sitting here as a believer in Jesus and a follower of Christ, then that promise is yours. God has promised that he's going to do you very much good. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. I can say that on the basis of Scripture. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. If you are in Christ, God has promised you an eternity of goodness. My goodness, how that changes how we look at life. And so all this in his mind, David is saying, I'm bearing up my soul to you, God. How comforting of a prayer can you pray unto God when that's the God that you know? Some of you know very small gods. Some of your gods are weak and poor. Some of your gods are distant and unknown to you because you have no idea who he is, because you don't open this book during the week, because you aren't hiding it in your heart. And so when you pray, it's weak and empty and you don't pray. And you see, David is praying on the basis of the God that he knows and the God that is good. He bears up his soul to this God. And so let me, let's look quickly at what he's praying. In verses two and three, we find a prayer for God's protection from enemies. God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are entirely evil, wantonly treacherous. David's praying for God's justice. He knows God's promised it. He knows it's going to happen, and so he's praying for it. He's praying confidently. And how do we know he's praying confidently? Well, he doesn't end with just the prayer. He says, let them not have victory over me, God. But then in verse 3, he says, for I know this. Or if you know me at all personally, I like the word indeed a lot. It's a great word, indeed. Thank you. Indeed, none who wait on the Lord shall be put to shame. He knows that those who hope in the Lord, which is another translation of wait, to hope or to be convictionally assured, this can't fail. That's what's in David's mind. Those who are convicted that God is who he is, you will never be ashamed. To know the God of scripture is to never be ashamed. That doesn't mean ashamed of our sin, we will always feel guilt of our sin. We will always feel the, feel the shame of our sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being lost to sin eternally. Those who know God and salvation in God, you will never be lost eternally. And so David here is looking past what he sees in the present. He's not concerned that if in fact it is his son that is behind this, he's not concerned that although he's lost his throne and his kingdom that he's hiding, he's not concerned with that. Because if he dies, he's going to be with God. And what does Paul say about that later in the New Testament, chapter, Philippians chapter one? For, depart, for to depart this life and be with Christ is far what? Better. Is that, is that how you view this life? That to die and go to be with Christ is better? That's what's in David's mind. He's praying, God solve this issue because it's bad, but it won't affect my hope in you. And so he's praying for God's justice on the basis of God's goodness. Look at verses four and five. He says, may me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. 
Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For I wait, for you I wait all the day long. And so here David is praying for guidance in righteous living. Guidance in righteous living. It should come as no surprise to many of you that God demands his people be holy and live righteous lives. How many of you, I'm asking you now, how many of you intentionally pray that God would cause you to live righteously? Because here's both the truth and the danger. The truth is that when we pray for God to make us righteous and to live righteously, he answers those prayers for his people. The danger is that he answers those prayers for his people. Some of you are scared to pray that prayer because you are too comfortable in your sin. Some of you love the way that you have embraced the world and you keep a tether to the church. You maintain that you're a Christian, but you do not walk in righteous living because you know that would mean I've got to put the world aside. The people of God pray on the basis of God's goodness that he would make them walk in faithfulness. Because as we'll see in just a moment, that way is better. That way is where true goodness lies. In verses six through seven, we find David praying for God's forgiveness of his sin. Look at verse six. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they've been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. I fear that too many of us come to God when we are in sin with our sin on our lips. Lord, I've done this. We just want to say it and move on. We should take note of how David approaches God in his sin. What's the first thing out of his mouth in verse six? It's the attribute of God. God, you're merciful. I'm coming to you because you're merciful. Remember me, God, because you are a God of steadfast love. And it's been established. That, that, that phrase, for they have been from of old, can also be understood as it's been established. It's been proven. David's not concerned with this question, will God keep his promise to save? That's far into David's mind because what he's looking at here is the God of my salvation has proven himself to be faithful. And so looking forward, I can have full assurance that he will always be faithful. How many of us so often worry when we get stuck in sin that maybe God's not gonna forgive me this time? Or if you're like me, we were talking in growth group last week. One of the things I struggle with is that when I find myself in sin, I feel like I have to distance myself from God, that I'm not worthy to pray. I'm not, you know, I shouldn't listen to, to worship music or, you know, whatever it is. I distance myself because I don't feel that I've, I've earned my position before the Lord. And how foolish and alien of a thought to the gospel because when I need him most, my natural heart's reaction is to distance myself. Because instead of like David praying on the basis of God's mercy, what I'm doing is I'm saying, God, I'm not good enough, so I'm just gonna hang out over here in my sin and actually make it worse. And when I distance myself from God on the basis of my own sin, what I'm doing is I'm giving myself an excuse to stay in it. We love our sin. It has a grip on our heart. And what God is saying through the gospel that we can be saved from that, not because I behaved long enough, not because I stayed distanced from God long enough, on the basis of verse six, God is merciful. 
And God has promised to save a wicked and evil people. And he's done that from the beginning. He's doing that now, and he's going to do it. And that's why David is praying. How can we pray with any hope that God would forgive our sins? It's because he has promised to in Christ. That's the only reason we can pray with any confidence whatsoever is because it's already forgiven in Christ. And and the reason Christ went to the cross is because, verse 6, he is a God of mercy and steadfast love. Look with me at verses 15 through 18. David is praying for protection and preservation amidst affliction. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The image here is that we're stuck in a net. We can't get out. We need someone else to help. And the only one who can help is God. And so I turn to God. It's not wrong to to, to pray in affliction. So many of you are facing hardship and afflictions, and it is not wrong to pray. On the contrary, it is right to pray. We should pray and see God in in the face of hardship. When we are sick, we should ask God, Lord, heal this sickness. But what we should not do is put God to the test. If you don't heal this sickness, then you're not good. That's our natural response. What David is showing is that we must view every hardship and affliction through the lens of God's character, which says in the moment of sickness, if this sickness brings an end to my life, God is still good. And there's no harder time to swallow that pill than in the middle of it. Pastor David and I were talking not too long ago that sometimes it can seem like our house is on fire. And sometimes our natural reaction is just to run out instead of realizing that God may have purpose for us to walk in the fire and to trust that even if our house is on fire, that he is a God of mercy and steadfast love who will pluck our feet from the net. In verses 19 through 21, we find David praying for protection from his enemies again. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Then in verse 22, he's praying for the saving of his people. God save Israel. It's really a proclamation because he knows God's already promised to save Israel. And so he's praying in anticipation. You see, David prays because he's trusting in what God has said about himself in the past. And he's also trusting in what God will do. He's looking back, trusting in God's character and believing God's word and looking forward, which leads us to the second point, which is this. David prayerfully anticipates God's help on the basis of God's goodness. He's anticipating God's help on the basis of his character. Look at verse 8. He says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinners in his way. God helps his people live righteously. So in verses four and five, where David is praying, make me know your paths, Lord. He's now praying in verse eight. I know you will make me know your paths. Good and upright is the Lord. He's going to act for goodness towards his people by instructing them in the right way to live. And as I said a minute ago, some of us are terrified to pray that. But there's goodness there because God has promised that there is and because it's better than a life of sin. Look at verse nine. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Another word for humble is teachable. God is concerned that we are a teachable people. We are not ends in and of ourselves. We are entirely dependent upon his goodness. 
And in the context of what the Bible talks about the church is, we are dependent on one another. So not only should we learn from God and learn his word, we should teach his word to one another. We should depend on one another. We should love one another, bear with one another, suffer with one another. But in that same vein, if you are a hard-hearted person, God is not going to teach you. It says he leads the humble, not the arrogant. So we must pray on the basis of God's character for God to soften our hearts and make us a teachable people with the assurance that he will because of who he is. In verse 11, we find God's help in the forgiveness of sin. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This goes back to verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, God has promised. He started in the garden when Adam and Eve broke his rule, broke his law, and they fell into sin. He promised, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'm going to send someone to crush this snake. It's going to happen. And he sustained it through Abraham and all the fathers and then into Israel and the monarchy and then into the New Testament church. And today, God is promising and is saving people from their sins, not because we are a good people, friends, but because he is a good, good God. Verses 12 through 14, we find God's help and guidance. David said, who's the man that fears the Lord? Because it is the one who fears the Lord that he is instructed in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, or well-being can also be understood to be prosperity or flourishing. So many of us want to live good, godly lives of flourishing and prosperity, but because we love sin, it doesn't happen. Because we are not a humble people before God, it doesn't happen. When we pray to God on the basis of who he is and we ask in faith, teach me these things, He's faithful to deliver them to us. He's faithful to teach us in the way. He's faithful to bring prosperity to his people, but we've got to be careful to define prosperity by what he said, not by what we have said. And then in verse 22, David is praying. He's praising God for his promise to save. Redeem Israel, O God. A modern day translation, save the church, God. We know he's going to. We know he already has. And so we should pray with confidence. God, continue to save your people. Now, be reminded right now, if you're in Christ, God is saving you right now. Tells us in Romans that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is interceding for us right now with a groaning too deep for words or with a language we don't even understand. God is interceding for us. Why? Because he's a good God. And so David, as he looked back and reflected on God's character from his word, he prayed to God. And as he considered God's word, he anticipated God's help on the basis of his character. He knows what God has promised to do for his people. And so I want to give some brief reflections on God's goodness as we see it in these Psalms or in this Psalm some of the characteristics of God that come out. And I wanna ask this question, why does God's character matter for the way that we pray? It matters in every way. I've already defined God's goodness as benevolence, that he's acting for our good. And so when we come before him, we can pray, God, continue to act for my good. God wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is a life of gospel-centered righteousness. 
We see his righteousness come to bear in this psalm. For us, righteousness has the idea of a strict adherence to the law. But you see, God is not subservient to his law. His law emanates from who he is. He is entirely righteous. We understand righteousness by who God is. And so his entire righteousness comes to bear in this psalm that he's going to do what is right. One pastor said that he is all that he should be. Think about that. Who should God be in your mind? If we're thinking rightly, if we're thinking biblically, God is all that he should be. We see God's justice come into play, which is an exercise of his righteousness. See, he maintains himself over and against every violation of his holiness. You and I, because we are sinful, violate the holiness of God every single day, but God is not shaken by that. He maintains himself over and against that, and for his people, he is gracious and merciful. But hear me well, if you are not in Christ, God's justice says that he will execute the law and his punishments against you. What we saw at the cross was God's execution of his justice on Christ for the sins of his people. What we will see in the future is God executing his justice and righteousness against unbelief in hell forever. Those are the only two options when it comes to dealing with sin. Either we are found in Christ where God has already executed it, or we will spend eternity in hell because God will exercise his justice forever because sin is an eternal offense against the holy God but we also see God's graciousness, that he exercises his love and his favor and his mercy towards his people. He's gracious in that he's provided salvation apart from the law through his son, Jesus Christ. We see that he's faithful and has loving kindness for his people. This attribute of God is one of the most important that emerges from the Bible. It's mentioned in over 245 verses that God is a God of loving kindness, his steadfast love. He has a commitment to all that he has promised and he will keep it. Finally, we see that God is a God of compassion. He's not unsympathetic to the plight of his people. God is entirely concerned when you walk the road of affliction. God is entirely concerned when you are struggling with sin. God is entirely concerned when you are struggling to believe and to walk in faith. God is entirely concerned with your life. And here's what he says, pray in faith and I will meet you there. God desires to answer the prayers of his people. God desires that we pray on the basis of his character. God desires that we know him as a good daddy. So David has taught us not only how to pray, but why we should pray. We should pray because of who God is. You see, when we don't pray, what we're saying is, I don't believe that God is who he says he is. When we pray small, tiny, weak prayers, we're saying God's not worthy of being reminded of who he is. I don't need to know that God is all that he says he is. When we confine our prayers to routine whether it's before mealtime or right before bed, if our prayers are short, the same, and at the same time, then we aren't really praying. We're not bearing our soul up to God. We pray as God's people on the basis of his goodness because he's a good God. So I wanna ask you two questions as we 
close this morning. The first question is this. Are you praying on the basis of God's goodness? Are you this morning, wherever you are in this room, are you praying on the basis of God's goodness? Romans chapter 10, Paul says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can he say that? Because he knows God has promised to save all who call on his name. How can you look someone in the face and say, God will save you if you believe and trust and follow? Because the promise isn't yours. The promise is God's. And God has promised that it is a true and steadfast promise. That it won't let people down. So a prayer of salvation is a prayer on the basis of God's goodness. Are you praying that prayer? Have you prayed it? Are you walking in faith? Or are you this morning under the righteous justice that God will execute? And I tremble for you. Because just last week we were asked the question, who will ascend the mountain of God? Or, or, or in, a, in a more slang sense, who's going to come up to God's holiness? Are you going to approach God in your righteousness? Am I going to approach God in my righteousness? The psalm leaves us no question but to say, absolutely not. Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart may ascend the mountain of God. And as Pastor Casey reminded us, praise be to God that Christ descended the hill for us and now takes us to God when we are in him. And so I beseech you this morning, if you are apart from Christ, pray for salvation on the basis of his character because he is faithful to save. But I also have a second question. Are you prayerfully anticipating on the basis of God's goodness? Are you right now, in whatever situation you've got going on in your life, are you anticipating God's faithfulness on the basis of his goodness or are you judging God's faithfulness on whatever situation you're in? Are you looking at the context of your life, your day-to-day struggles and asking God, why are you not fixing this? God, if you're good, why are you not dealing with this? God, if you're good, why are you letting this happen to me? You see, those are improper prayers because they've originated in our hearts of sin. God desires us to come to him in hardship and to pray, God, help me in this moment because I know you will never leave me. You will never forsake me. You have promised eternal goodness to me. Psalm 23, you are the good shepherd that leads me beside streams of still waters. You are the God who's restoring my soul. Even when I'm in the presence of my enemies, you're preparing a table. You notice David doesn't say, you remove me from the presence of my enemies. He says, when I'm there, you're faithful. When I'm there. We find this in Romans chapter eight, where where Paul is reflecting on how good God has been to his people and how good he is to his people. And he, he says, if God has already given everything to Christ, which he has, how's he not gonna give everything to us when we're in Christ? You thought about that? In the midst of our hardship, if we are in Christ, we've got the mindset that God's never going to forsake us even though we might die. So much of our ideas of God are confined by our measures of our own lives. If I'm, not success, if I'm not financially successful, God's not being good. If I'm sick, God's not being good. If I've got distress in my family, God's not being good. If I'm in the hospital, God's not being good. Those are natural, but they're wrong. They're not 
prayerful anticipations on the basis of who God is and what he's done. We come to scripture and we come away with this, that God has given us all things in Christ. And so my challenge to you this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, pray robust, God-centered, joyful prayers. Because friends, our God is faithful. Our God is steadfast and our God is forever loving. He will never forsake his people. Will you pray with me now? Lord, teach us to pray. As the disciples asked you, teach us to pray. God, teach us to pray when we face hardship based on who you are. Teach us to pray when we find ourselves in our sin based on who you are. Teach us to pray in our fears based on who you are. God, and as we meet you in prayer, change us, deal with our sin, call us into righteous living. We know, God, on the basis of your steadfast promises of old that you're gonna save, and so God, continue to do it. Save us now. God, we praise you that your friendship is for your people. And we are your friends because of what you've done. And for those in this room this morning that may not yet be followers of your son, I pray that you would call them now because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To God with David, I say, redeem your people out of all their sins. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church located in Gastonia, North Carolina please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.